You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Hey, everybody, and welcome to More to Be Said. This is our podcast where we just take those questions we think are really relevant and bounce around in your head, and we take them a little bit deeper and ask some experts what they have to help us understand the issue better. And today I have with me two guests, April Bordeaux and John Money, and they are coming over to us from Care to Change. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. So, April, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks, Matt. It's good to be here. I've been a therapist for over 25 years and have been leading Care to Change now for uh, six or seven years. And I'm also the director there. I am married, been married almost 25 years, actually 24 years this year. And I have two kids, uh, one in high school and one who thinks she's in high school. But <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So that's me. And John, what about yourself? Hi, everybody. Yeah, my name's John Money, and I, um, I've been with Care to Change about five years now as a therapist, and before that have pastored a couple of churches, church plants, and just passionate about helping people, and especially men and couples in a lot of issues. So happy to be here today. Well, we're glad to have you both. Let's dig into that part of your story real quick before we get into this issue a little bit. So John, what made you decide to leave the pastorate and become a full-time therapist? There had to be a trigger there somewhere. Yeah. I think it's um, just, I love the the intimacy of the conversations. Um, it's one version of the truth that I believe I would get sitting in the pastoral seat and another version of the truth sitting in the counselor seat. A lot of times I'll find that clients will, because it's not connected to the church and it's it's not someone that they see week by week in a church setting, they feel more safe. They feel like they can open up and they're actually, especially if they're coming on their own, they're coming for help and they, they know they're having a private conversation. I think we're excellent at confidentiality. And I think that just gives, you know, they, they want to get to the root of what's going on. So I do say all the time, one of the reasons we refer to care to change as well as some others in our community is that very reason. When Mm -hmm. people see me on Sunday, they still want me to be their pastor, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's the same reason why every parent needs another person in their kid's life to say what the parent would say, because every kid wants their parent to be proud of them, right? Mm -hmm. So they hold back a little bit. So I love that. Love that. Thank you. What about you, April? What made you decide to go into this kind of work? I think from a really young age, I knew that I was sort of knit together to help people and then life situations and um, my own experiences um, have afforded me the blessing of having people walk alongside me. And so I think it was just a calling from a young age that I knew I would be in the helping field. So, Oh, very good. We're thankful for the work you guys do in our community. You've partnered with us in a number of people's lives. And so we're thankful, thankful for you guys. Thanks. Okay. So let's jump in. September's a big month. I don't know if it's suicide prevention month or if there's suicide prevention day, but it's become such a big deal in our world that we have to focus on it, slow down and help. So for those of you who are, this is not your first podcast listening to us. We've done a couple of podcasts already on suicide and we just wanted to get in some professional opinions to help us work through this. So my first question for you today is, is it ever possible to predict suicide in a person's life? Can you look and see based off the way they're acting perhaps that, Hey, this is going there. Is that ever something that's possible to predict? I can start there really in terms of predicting, you know, no one has a a crystal ball to be able to tell what's going to happen in someone's life, but you can certainly be educated about risk factors associated with those who want to die and can look at a genetic load, can look at circumstances 
um, can look at signs and symptoms. And so can you predict? Maybe not, but you can certainly look at the risk and look for signs to know the direction that they're headed. So is there ever a, a time to take it more serious than others? Like, hey, I'm, I think this is escalate, you know, versus maybe somebody says, hey, I've been feeling down or I've been feeling mm-hmm. depressed. How do I gauge like on a scale of one to 10? When I was a youth pastor, this is 20 years ago now, they would coach you to ask some questions like, well, have you thought about how you would do that? Have you thought about where you would do that? Have you thought about when you're going to do that? Have you actually bought the materials to do that? And you can get a gauge for how serious they are based off whether or not they're answering those questions. What I'm reading now is throw all those questions out the window, take all of them just as serious as any other. So what, what thoughts do you have? So let's say I'm a parent and it's my child who's making comments. How do I know how to respond or how serious it is? Yeah, that, I think if they start to verbalize it or uh, a lot of good parents, uh, depending on the age of the the child or youth, you know, sometimes you, I call it just sanctified snooping <laughs> around <laughs> their uh, journals, or if you, you know, they write something down, you can find out a lot about what's going on in the, the heart and the mind. And I can think of a situation a long time ago where just the young person was, their journals became, you know, I used to care, but not anymore. Or mm. why would God make a worthless piece of Mm. crap like me. Sorry if I'm no, saying too fine. much there, not, but no, reality, and they even use a different word. I think that family in particular, they knew that combined with cutting and other actions that they knew they had a very serious uh, situation on hand and it's time to take action. So in that situation, it was they, you know more formalized action, getting help. Okay. So yeah, I think it's important to note that as a parent or a caretaker or a helper, if you see changed behavior or Mm -hmm. attitude, a feeling of hopelessness or darkness of wondering about life, whether they're direct cues or indirect cues that to take it seriously and to, to begin the process of asking the right questions and to be thoughtful about that. Okay. So what do those questions look like? Can you help? Help us figure that out. You know, there's indirect ways to ask the question and there are direct ways. And the direct ways are, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Do you wish that life was over? Are you thinking about suicide? That's about as direct as you can get. Mm. And indirectly, um, how does this feel hopeless to you? Um, What's the way out for you? What have you been thinking? They both arrive at the same conclusion, but one is just a little bit more direct. What I will say is people ask the question, if I say the word suicide and they're not thinking about it, did I just plant the seed in their mind? And research has shown that you're not. If they're thinking about it, they're thinking about it. And it will actually reduce the anxiety and the hopelessness that someone can feel by saying directly, are you thinking about death or suicide or Mm. or harming yourself because you've just entered how deeply they're hurting. Without asking the question, the conversation can end and the person is left thinking they don't even understand how badly it's hurting because they weren't willing to go there with me. So how the question is asked um, is important, but asking it is, um, you don't want to say things like, you're not thinking about doing anything stupid, are you? You wouldn't hurt yourself, would you? Like out of jest, because, you know, you kind of, well, I'm not sure if they want to, so I don't, you know, want to say it. And so I'm just going to say, you're not thinking about doing anything crazy, are you? Well, what are they going to say? Well, as a matter of fact, I am. (laughs) No, right? So asking it, whether it's directly or indirectly, and if you don't feel comfortable finding someone who does, but also knowing upfront that you're not planting an idea. And actually, if that's what they're thinking, the research shows that you're reducing 
that anxiety that someone feels around that topic. That's so good. You mentioned something, John, about the journals. Let's go there for a second. Should a parent be snooping, I think is the word you used, around a child's journal, computer, cell phone? I mean, you know, things are not just all handwritten today. So should a parent be doing that? We may have difference of opinion, but uh, I think there are situations where Yes, that's a short answer. <laughs> to be very clear. Yes. You know, you want to build trust and, and all that, and but sometimes situations get so intense and critical and the, uh, the poor young person or not necessarily your loved one just start spiraling. And that's when I do think it is warranted and uh, probably a good idea, especially if you're not getting uh, the level of conversation or communications broken down. It's a risk, but it can be worth taking. Does yeah. a parent communicate with the child, hey, I'm, I've been looking through your journals. Um, hey, I'm going to do this or just set the rule up front. By the way, this is my house. Everything in right. this house is my property. I mean, what's the best way there? I may need help on this, April, but I, I think it's situational. I think it's that's kind of a, a soft answer, but it, it, it's just going to be dependent upon what's happened, how have other responses been, like the order of magnitude. Sometimes you can get responses that, you know, are, go far exceed what the uh, response should have been, right? It's just order of magnitude right. was not in kind, right? Right, right? Wow, I can't believe you looked at this or there may be retribution. So there has to be some judgment there. Yeah, yeah, some yeah. discernment. Yeah. yeah. April, yeah. do you have anything to add to that? No, I, I agree with you, John. Do you? Right. Yeah, I think there's a time for it and a time not. But, you know, if you're wondering and that worried um, about your child, then, you know, I think it's time to look, yeah. time to ask. Okay, so let's not just talk about parents. Let's talk about adults for a second. Let's say um, I'm married to a person, and I can tell they're they're in a funk. It could be depression, it could be anxiety, it could be anxiety that escalated to depression, whatever it might be. But how do I recognize their signs? And is there anything that I can do? It could be a friend, a loved one, or whatever. Like what what can I? know we're not talking about a child where there's obviously power structures at, in play, right? But what could a spouse do or a friend do to to help somebody else through this? Is there any thoughts about how they could? recognize the signs and encourage them or that kind of thing. There's three common components to someone who is suicidal. Mm. Feeling like a burden because maybe it's not their first low point. Feeling hopeless, like whatever the circumstance or situation is, it's not going to change. And then feeling alone, like no one really understands. And so if that's the common elements, which I have seen it over and over and believe it to be true, then whatever you can do to combat that, which means not minimizing, not distracting, not trying to buy the way out or buy happiness or, um, you know, if someone has a broken leg, you're not going to say, come on, just get up, start running. <laughs> and if someone is in a dark place to say, come on, just get up. The brain doesn't work like that. Emotions don't work like that. And so as a spouse saying, I'm so glad I get to walk this time with you. What a privilege that I know enough about you that I can see how deeply you're hurting or how dark it's getting for you. It's not a burden like, oh my gosh, here we go again. It's not. It's I get the privilege of walking even the dark days with you. And that relieves the burden. The second is hopelessness. You know, this is never going to change. There's always opportunity for change. There's always something that can be done to make change. So what is it? Let's find it together. We can find something small that's going to bring us hope. Where do we hang our hat 
to find the hope. Go there. Um, and not in a trite sort of platitude-ish, come on, let's just pray together. It's going to get better. Um, not that. That's not what I'm talking about. If your hope is in God and you're saying, well, let's just pray about this, honey. You know, yes, I'm not saying don't pray about it, but I'm saying it's not, it's, it sounds trite when someone's in a dark space. And then again, feeling alone as the third element saying, I'm, I'm here with you. I'm going to walk this with you. I'll go to appointments with you. If you need to, if you need to see a counselor, you want me to go with you. Um, I can sit with you so that the counselor can tell me what I can do to support you. Oh, you want to go by yourself? That's fine too. You want to take a friend? Who can we, so really whatever it takes to say, I'm in it with you or you're not alone. So to me, if it's a spouse, there's such tenderness that's required, whether it's a, the male that's feeling it or the female, it doesn't matter because we're human. Yeah. And so when someone's in a dark space, practicing the gift of presence and being there, being attuned, asking the question, responding compassionately, walking with them, those are key to making a difference. Years ago, Robin Williams did a movie. I'm trying to remember what it was called. What, what Dreams May Come? I think that might be the name of the movie. And I don't, it's been so many years since I've seen it. It just came to mind as you were talking about this. His wife, like, uh, I think she commits suicide. She goes into like the seven levels of hell or something. I don't remember what it is. But the whole movie is like his journey to find her. And he finds her in this very deep and dark place. Like, do not watch this movie with your little kids. This is not a little kid's movie. But he finds her and the whole point of the movie that Hollywood is putting out is like he met her in her pain and was finally able to bring her not back from the dead, but it was like, finally, you get it all those years like you didn't understand I needed you to join me in what I'm going through. And again, as a Christian, as a pastor, we're doing this as a church, you know, this is what God's answer was to our pain as he came, became one of us, dwelt among us. So incarnation is what the theological term we use for that. Okay. So that brings up a good question. I, it makes me think of this. You were talking about this April and John, I don't know if you have an experience for us. Men love to be fixers, right? I think we just love this. Why we tinker with cars and wood and all kinds of things like that, right? We love to fix things. And this creates problems in married people because uh, sometimes our wives don't want to be fixed. They just want to be heard. So when you're dealing with maybe couples going through this, do you have any situations you could think of where like you would, or wisdom you would offer to men who say want to love their wives to this dark place that they're in, but they don't, they want to fix it and they don't know what to do. Do you have any wisdom for that guy? Great question. It goes along with what April was sharing about coming alongside and you just reinforced even the, the Robin Williams movie. I, I haven't yeah. seen that. I'm going to have to oh, look check it out. But that sounds like a great advice, right? So you're right. Men do love to fix and kind of get to the solution as fast as possible. And I, I think that that can be a serious challenge, right? And mm. even if it's not around suicide, but just in relationships and that that's a big, big thing. So are there certain th triggers in a person's life that are leading them to suicide? You mentioned burden, hopelessness alone. Right now, the last stat I saw was something along the lines of 46,000 suicides in 2016. The number went to like four, over 47,000. Uh, this is successful in America in 2019, I think it was, or 17. And I'm sure today with the quarantine, it's even bigger. Are you seeing an increase right now in your clients of this being an issue, a struggle, a reality? What is causing that? You're right, Matt. There is one suicide every 11 minutes. Wow. We've probably been talking 11 minutes, which means every 12 minutes, there's a family member picking up pieces. And so, yes. And to give you a couple of stats, in Indiana, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death. Of all deaths, it's the 10th leading cause, and it's known suicide. 
So if someone overdoses, it may not be suicide because we don't know the intent. If someone wants to die by suicide and they run their car into a, a tree, it may be death by accident, not suicide. So we know the number is actually higher. These are confirmed because of suicide. Probably more alarming is that in Indiana, it's the second leading cause of death for 15 to 24-year-olds. It's the second leading cause of death. So if you think about that, the statistics are alarming. Are we seeing greater suicides since COVID? Um, you know, we've been warned not to have this kind of discussion because the numbers are still out. Is it because of COVID? Um, so we've sort of been warned, you know, in the suicidology realm to, an to answer that question with wisdom, but to say that there is definitely increased loneliness mm -hmm. and hopelessness. So at least two of the three factors uh, we know, you know, are here because of COVID, increased because of COVID. So yes, probably the numbers will go up, but again, how can you predict? What I want to talk about is this pathway. It's called the journey to suicide. Okay. So someone isn't born thinking, I'm going to die by suicide. So there's a genetic load and there's a circumstantial load. And the more components or pieces, the more someone walks toward suicide as being an option or something that's available, a choice for them. And so the more of these elements are loaded into their life and into their genetics, the more they walk toward the path of suicide being an option. And then usually there's some sort of a crisis. So you're walking, you have these loads, some of them are, you know, um, mental illness, uh, mental health struggles is one of the highest, one of the leading risk factors for suicide. Family members having mental illness, previous attempts, family members dying by suicide. These are all elements that could walk somebody toward suicide as being an option. And then there's usually some crisis and the crisis can be you lose your job, you lose your spouse, someone dies, there's a great big transition, something that is unpredicted, unwanted, and then boom, all of a sudden that's your, this isn't going to change now, suicide is the best option. So there's sort of this journey to walking toward it, and then there's this event that happens, and then someone chooses that, Yeah. if there's available means. That's terrifying, and thank you for sharing that. So when you talk about the preloaded and the genetics, are we talking, I'm going to throw like anxiety, depression, manic depression, are we, are we yes. talking about like clinical diagnoses? Like, is that what we're referring to? Depression is the number one. Okay. So if you or someone that you love who's listening has been diagnosed or could be diagnosed with depression, that's the number one. That's not the only one, but is the number one uh, mental health issue or mental illness that is a predictive factor in suicide. So are they finding links between depression and genetics? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Can you flesh that out for us at all? Because I think we're going to have some listeners going, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I believe that or buy that. Yeah. Well then tell the listeners to do their research, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's why you ask us to come here. Right? Yeah, that's but, right. Um, yeah. Really, I mean, depression is a chemical imbalance in the brain right? And so it's genetic. Someone can be born with the genetic makeup to have blue eyes or brown eyes or to be taller or not as tall or dark hair or wavy hair, whatever. It's a different part of the body. It's just a chemical imbalance in the brain. And so yes, if your parents have 
or high depression or you, you mentioned manic, you know, any of the mental illnesses, then yes, there's an opportunity or opportunity might not be the best word, but there's a chance that it can be passed down. Just like any other medical condition, it can be passed down. And so, yes, it's, there's a genetic component in that. It's not a, it's not a sentence. I get what you're saying. Right. So it's not just because no, your parents have go it doesn't that. mean that you're, that you're, oh, my mom and dad had, or my mom had, or my, oh my gosh, I'm bound to have it. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's just there, just like disease could, you know, high blood pressure, high, you know, I'm not a medical doctor, but there are some, you know, diseases when you go to the doctor, like yeah, what's in your family? Yeah. Why? Because they want to know, do you have the genetic load that you could potentially have that as well? Depression is the same. Years ago, early in my marriage, I think it was my second or third year of marriage. It was around 2002, married in 99. I spent some time with a counselor working through a bunch of different things. Through that time, he became, I and mean, we literally, I spent almost two years with him. Um, he became almost a friend as much as anything. And one of the things I remember just sitting around kind of shooting the breeze with him. And he said to me, he said, you know, Matt, he said, studies show that counseling by itself can help some people. There's no doubt there could be breakthrough. Medicine by itself can help some people, but actually tends to do less. But when you put the two together, especially somebody who's in a severely depressed or anxious state, it can regulate their thoughts so they can actually work through the yes. things that are driving yes. this. Are you seeing that same today? I mean, that was 20 years ago. 100%. Mm -hmm. Now you guys, do you prescribe medicine? Do you? Yeah, we have, we don't at Care to Change, not now. If you're listening and you're a prescriber and you're looking, <laughs> call <laughs> us. But we have partners that we send people to to say, hey, um, can you help us with this? We think there needs to be a little bit more. Yeah. Okay. So I want to get to this question because what I just said is shocking to some of our listeners. Like, oh my goodness, a pastor at a church in Colorado spent time with a counselor. And I'll just say, yeah, I've done that a number of times. My theory is why wouldn't you? Tiger Woods, when his golf swing is messed up, he calls a coach. Mm -hmm. LeBron James, when his shot isn't going in, he calls a coach. Many, many CEOs are professionals when they are trying to figure out what to do with the business. Pastors, when we're trying to lead a church, we call in a coach. We say, I'm not, something's not right in the way I'm leading or the way I'm thinking. I need help. Can you help me figure this out? Why is there such a stigma around getting therapy or counseling for these kind of mental conditions? Yeah, I jump in there. I, th I think it's just a lot of uh, love you listeners, but it can be a lot of bullheaded pride and just kind of afraid of that stigma and kind of a sense of shame, even feeling like, oh, I'm a failure if I need to go to counseling or some things I think just are barriers, especially for men to make that decision. Yes, I'm going to get some help or even asking for help. A lot of men don't even want to ask for help. You know, hey, I don't know how to change spark plugs or I don't need to do this, right? I'm going to sneak and look at a YouTube video and see if I can figure it out. It's just trying to write it out, try to tough it out. And sometimes you just need help, especially if you're sinking low and piggybacking on this discussion about chemical imbalance, all of that. And you guys know this, right? We're a, a psychosomatic unity, right? We're mind, body, and spirit. Our bodies, if we feel ill, and now we're in this COVID phase, right? It's We're, we're going to seek medicine. We're going to seek help to heal our bodies. So a lot of times we just don't have that same perspective on our, our mental health. And then even from a, a Christian perspective, right? Our, our souls. Yeah. And that is an aspect I love about Care to Change is we try to minister to all that, that psychosomatic unity, that mind, body, and spirit. And I love how we can bring in everything we've talked about. We're more than just a body and a brain. We have a soul right. that needs, that can get darkened. And along with that chemical imbalance in the brain, what can really happen around trauma or self-inflicted just, you know, I, I see a lot of men. So the porn addiction is rampant. The shame around that is rampant. 
sometimes it just starts with, I'll just, I'm not, I don't even like to name the types of porn, but it can be normal porn. And then it can more and more and more, it just gets darker and darker. And that's taking someone's soul and spirit to a much deeper place and their mind. And um, there's a lot of shame. And some of that can be linked with trauma that they've just never have felt a sense of victory. So you can have year on year on year on year of defeat. And uh, it's just this unhealthy, toxic (laughs) um, mindset develops. So let's go with the shame route for a second. So what role do you see shame playing as it relates specifically to suicide? Okay, so April mentioned burden, hopelessness, and alone. So would shame go into that hopeless trigger, that sense of, man, I'm, I'm okay, maybe let me back up. Can we define shame? And then maybe I'll ask that question. Mm-hmm. Can we define shame for our listeners? Yeah, there's a difference between shame and guilt, right? So Guilt is sort of God's gift to us. We've done something that wasn't in our prescribed value system, and we feel guilty about it, and we need to make it right and make amends. And when we do that, the guilt goes away, and we learn from it, and we move on. Shame says, I am fill in the blank. Um, Instead of, I made a mistake, I am a mistake. Mm. So shame is an image bearer. So it's not a gift from God, you know, um, guilt keeps us moving in the direction that our value system calls us to be, where shame imprisons us because it says something is inherently wrong with us Mm -hmm. as a person, that we're not lovable or we're not worthy or we're not enough or Mm -hmm. whatever the shame statement is that um, we prescribe to as a human. So there's a difference. And then leveraging that, that could lead then to that thought of, you know what, the world would probably be better off without me. All I am is a burden. For everybody anyway, I'm just a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, is that where that then goes in, in the mind? It is so is. I'm thinking of all these stories of people who have lost loved ones to suicide. And that's what I keep hearing. You know, as you're saying that, Matt, I'm just, I'm just getting these stories yeah. and stories. And, you know, I'm a burden to my family. I, you know, I should be leading my family better than this. And here I am dragging them down or this has happened to me. And it's because I made bad decisions and there's no way I'm going to dig myself out of this or dig us out of it. I'm bringing all of this on my family. And so this is the best way out, or this is what happened to me. And so I can't make a change. And the person who did it's out there running free, like nothing happened. I'll never get over this. And so this is the best way out. And so there is this element of shame that says, I I can't get over this. And because I can't get over this, I'm pulling the people that I love down. Mm. And so that becomes an option. Some people say, well, suicide's so selfish. A lot of people who die by suicide, it's because they want to give freedom to the people who have been carrying that burden. That's a sad statement to make. So in their mind, it's not selfish. I'm actually right. doing the best thing that can be done for them, right. which is an extremely dangerous next step right. in the mind to take because then at that, you've got to prove to me then that there's a better right. option. Otherwise, why would I not, if I love them, right? why would I not do what's best for them? It's such a false, twisted mm-hmm. truth. Like, it's just so not true, but it, it's there's enough, like, I can't make a chip, I can't change it, that it's easy to kind of spiral down into believing that. What should somebody who's out there listening and they're thinking to themselves, you know what? I don't know. Maybe it would do something for me. I don't know. Maybe I should get counseling. What should that person sitting out there expect? Let's go through some of the questions like how much would it cost, give or take? And I know it doesn't all have to be care to change. We want to promote care to change because we believe in you guys, but there are other great 
people in our community. So what's a ballpark? What should somebody expect? You know, I, it, it just depends. There's, you know, do you have insurance that you want to use and what's your insurance package all the way from, you know, you can find a therapist in the $80 a session range all the way up to the $300 a session range. So it's, there's, it's, there's such a wide range of cost, um, available, just like you want to go to see a personal trainer, you know, to improve your health. What's the price? Well, there's a wide range out there. Where do you want to go? Who do you want to see? What are their specialties? How are they going to help you? The price is going to vary based on that. So I wish I had, this is what you can expect, but really there it's all over the place. Okay. That gives a ballpark. Mm -hmm. So obviously nobody has a magic wand, right? If you had it, we'd all just wave it right now and everybody would be happy, right? Right. God's the only one with a magic wand and he's going to do that one day when Jesus returns. Mm -hmm. So since there's no magic wand, how long should a person expect to be in therapy? You know, here's the thing. That's a loaded question. It is. And here's the thing. Do you want to learn coping skills or do you want to heal? Oh, that's That's going to answer. You want some coping skills and some basic life skills, you know, two, three, sessions, um, you're going to get some good tools. And, and if you want to know the root and to find true healing and to make real change, it can take some time. It depends on, you know, it's the magic question, you know, how long does it take to get fit and in shape? Well, how long did it take you to get where you are, right? Can I go to the gym two times and eat healthy for seven days? And am I going to look in the mirror and see something different, right? Or does it take time to undo what I've been telling myself over and over and relearn healthy patterns of thinking and what to do with my emotions? So I think that if someone says to you, we can do this in three sessions, they're not being honest. You can get a lot. It's better than none, right? But get the tools and run with it. But I think, you know, I, I'm just so tired of coping. I, I want, and I, I want to see healing. I want people to see he- healing. Yeah. So what's super important because you mentioned it, Matt, there are lots of different therapists and counseling organizations is to find the one that fits because not every person is for every person. And so, you know, someone will say, well, I tried it and it just quote, you know, didn't work. Well, maybe the therapist that you were with wasn't a good fit. Find a different one, you know, Uh, Because different people have different personalities, different training, different backgrounds, different styles in the session. And so just keep looking until you find the one that fits and then you'll see a difference. So I would say that because not everyone is for everybody. I think that's great advice. And we're never offended if someone says, you know, I I think maybe I want to see Mike. (laughs) I'm breaking up with you, John. (laughs) Yeah. You know, or Yeah. But truly what's best for the individual, the client, the couple. And what I love is there's like a building effect. Sometimes you'll, it's like you're working the problem, you're working the problem together. And it's really not just the therapist having all the answers. It's a lot of give and take and conversation and honesty. And, you know, we involve care to change. We, we, we pray about the clients. We ask the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us. And thankfully, I think that's kind of like the, uh, the advantage counseling center like care to change has is it is oriented around god help (laughs) you know right you help please bring healing and literally there have been couples or individuals that i've personally seen for i don't know a few months multiple months six months and and start saying okay where should we really go with this and then the next thing happens they they come in and they're sitting closer and they got their arm around each other and i'm like what's happened with you two and they're like well we just had a breakthrough this weekend (laughs) and it's such a beautiful thing Mm -hmm. but and we just remembered our conversation what we talked about on thursday and we really decided 
we started walking that out. So I've seen that so many times. It's hard to say how often. Well, we can ask you, Matt, how how many times does a person need to come to church before they get (laughs) saved? Right? Right? So so the studies actually show show it takes somewhere between 12 and 24 months. Wow depending on their background, where right. they are, their story, their, where they've been with Jesus, what they've been going through. Right. But they usually date us for anywhere from eight to, to 18 months. And that's usually somewhere in that ballpark. And we just had a guy who'd been at Kingsway two months and he just gave his life to Christ. But he has a background right. where he grew up with the church, had connected to the Lord and walked mm-hmm. away for a number of years and was coming back. So it wasn't completely foreign to him. So right. anyway, I, so I remember when I was with that same counselor I referenced earlier, early in my marriage, and I don't know, I was a few sessions in, I was like, and he was giving me a huge discount. He's like, Matt, I love you. I believe in you. I want to restore you and help you as a pastor so that for years to come, you could pour into other people. And so he was giving me half price and I'll, I won't say the price, but I, that was a huge blessing to me because I wasn't making any money. And, uh, but I was like, so what are we talking here? Like, you know, two or three more sessions. Like, oh, you know, what do we think? I'll get on like three sessions in. And he said, Matt, we're done when we're done. And right. I was like, okay, so like six months, like <laughs> he's like, he's like, Matt, I don't know how to help you with this. He's like, it costs what it costs. We're done when we're done and it'll be worth every dime. I promise. Mm-hmm. He was such a blessing. And I'm so glad I did it. And it took over two years. Uh, we didn't meet every week. We did at first and then went to, you know, every other week and then once a month. And then, and then he called me when you need me. And we just kind of phased out as we were done. And I was so thankful for his investment, but not everybody's going to need that. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't know right. until you get in there, start digging around. I tell guys and girls when they come to me and they're like, Hey, I think we need to see somebody. I'm like, I do too, but you should plan on a minimum of three to five sessions. That, mm-hmm. That's a good starting point. It takes yeah. that long to just kind of tell your story mm-hmm. and give the counselor, the therapist time to go, Oh, I think I actually know where to bring wisdom now. So the first session or two is really just that. And then, you know, people walk out and they're like, well, I did is tell my story. I paid them to just tell them my story. I'm like, yeah, but they're getting context for where they need to take you. Now they're entering with God into this and they're praying about it. Do you have any thoughts about how to guide people? What to expect when they show up? What's the room going to look like? How long will it take? I think you're right because the, you know, we do the first session or two sessions, whatever, we're asking a lot of questions, but we're also watching and listening and sometimes asking questions because we want to see the response, not necessarily hear it. And so, um, yeah, it does feel like there's a lot, but also there's power in being heard mm-hmm. and validated. And sometimes that's the first time mm-hmm. when someone comes in and realizes they're in a safe space and they start to share and we say, gosh, you're so brave. Thank you, you know, for honoring me wow. with sharing that story. There's so much relief in that. We're able to save space, create that space for them to just be able to be authentic. And even if that means it's really messy, you know, messy authenticity is a great grounding place for healing. And so I think if someone is listening and they say, okay, maybe I should call. I don't know if I should call. Okay, someone's has been telling me I should call. I don't know what. I would say look at different websites to begin with, right? So look at the websites, read people's bios, see if there's someone out there that matches or has experience or, you know, there's pictures out there. Do they, you know, do you look like they might, They will they be comfortable with, you know, just look um, first. I mean, we do that for everything else, right? Where should I go buy my fill in the blank? We can yeah. Google. So you can do that. That's the beauty of the internet now. You know, you can kind of do that too. And I can't speak for other places. I, I know at Care to Change, we went through great lengths to create an environment that was warm and inviting, but not feeling like you're walking into someone's living room. And so it's professional too, but it's not clinical, clinically professional, like a doctor's office. So every office is different. So it's so, you know, places tend to take the personality of whoever you know, you're seeing there, you know, you can stop in a place and kind of get a feel when you walk in how it is, or 
Um, but I'd say do do the homework to save yourself some time. You can ask a set of questions. You know, tell me what's your method. Where you know, how have you been trained? What do you do to help someone that's been through? Because there's specific techniques for specific problems too. So is the person a specialist? I know it care to change. We hire specialists because, you know, if you have a heart problem, you don't want to see your primary care doc. You want to see a cardiologist. So if you have a marriage problem, you want to see someone who specializes in marriage. You don't want to see someone who, well, yeah, I, I can see a couple, you know, like you want someone, this is what they do. This is what they love. This is what they're passionate about. Not everybody wants to see every age and stage and issue. So I'd say do the homework, do a stop in, drop by whatever you, you know, that place allows and then come armed with some questions or call and say, I just have a few questions like, what's their method? How do they do that? What happens in the first few sessions? Just take the time up front because that's free. Doing your homework and asking those questions doesn't cost anything. And if it saves you having to go from one to another, yeah. then you've saved yourself. Yeah, that's fantastic. John, you got anything you want to add to that? That's great. And I, I do want to really compliment April for the environment. I get that feedback all the time. Wow, it's just really uh, peaceful here. And I know she's gone to great lengths for that. And it really is a, a place of peace and professional, but yet comfortable. And there's no greater thrill as a, a counselor or a therapist than saying, you know what, I think we're at a good place right. or kind of a little mini graduation, right? right? So we love that. We don't, yeah. our goal is not to have a, a client for three years, right? Or <laughs> It's, no, let's make progress, get healing. We talked about that. Do you just want skills or do you want healing? And sometimes I love, we all love it when you reach the point like, I'm feeling really good. And I have been feeling really good. And and we'll be like, you know, we've been seeing each other every two, three weeks. Um, What are you thinking? Monthly? Or then now you graduate to say, let's just do check in every six months or something like that. So we love that and celebrate it. I love that. Uh, Guys, thank you so much for being here. I'm going to conclude this by saying um, I want to give you guys a chance to promote Care to Change. How do people find out about you? Where can they get more information? Where can they look you up? Yeah, so any of the social media places is a great place to go. It's caretochange.org. So I'd say start there. Look us up on social media. Okay. Thanks. Thank you, guys. God bless you both. Thank you.